Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach. On today's episode, uh, again, via Zoom, I am here with another wonderful trombonist, uh, sort of a friend of a friend, but hopefully we have the chance to connect now, Martin McCain. Uh, he, I became aware of him through my work with Karen Kubitis, but have been sort of researching him for this uh, particular podcast episode. And I'm really excited to dig in with him. Seems like a great guy, interested in pushing the craft forward, great player. And so hopefully we can dig into a lot more of who he is and what he believes and all those kinds of things. So first, Martin, thank you for joining me this Wednesday at morning, I guess it is still, huh? Right. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, this is awesome. It's so, it's surreal to be at this stage to like come, not full circle, so to speak, but to be like interviewing people who know about the podcast and who have listened to the pod. You know what I mean? It's, it's, Absolutely. it's we're like, we're that deep into it now, you know? Yeah, you've been doing this um, for two, two years? Going on two years? I, like a year and a half releasing wow. a year and a half, almost two years of like thinking about it and producing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. And I mean, maybe we can speak to this for a second too. It's like having done it regularly for a while, you start to see that sort of slight edge compounding interest effect where it's not, I haven't seen numbers in terms of like, oh, it's like been the steady numbers growth, but like I start to see a greater wealth of people being like, I've digested enough of this that it's seemed to make a difference in my life or in my playing and stuff like that. So it's pretty Absolutely. cool in that regard. That's awesome. So... Uh, I'm going to let Martin just take it in the beginning, and uh, we'll hear from him who he is, uh, what he does, maybe even some of the the genesis in the beginning and kind of working our way up. We'll just kind of go with it wherever he takes us. Go ahead, man. Definitely. So um, I'm the professor of trombone at Texas State University. And for those who don't know where Texas State is, it's in San Marcos, Texas, right in between Austin and San Antonio. Um, I'm also an extremely active freelancer in a lot of different sectors, um, kind of do the freeway and airways, um, Philharmonic situation, sub with a lot of different orchestras, um, a lot of different uh, jazz bands. Um, I do a lot of Broadway commercial shows too. I tour with my wife, who's a fantastic pianist, um, Martina McCain. Um, I do a lot of chamber music. I tour with my trombone quartet, the minor fourth trombone quartet, and the Rodney nice. Marsalis Philadelphia Brass Ensemble. Yeah, a lot of people, like, you know, a lot of theory buffs from, like, there's no such thing as a minor fourth. We're like, yeah, we have we have a, a story behind that, too. Yeah, well, we'll get into that, yeah. Um, the leader of a jazz band, jazz trombone ensemble based out of Austin um, called Jazz Bones. And yeah, you know, I just, I love, I think I have like one of the coolest gigs in the world where I can teach and perform. I work with uh, fantastic students at Texas State, uh, which, you know, is a huge joy. I'm working with a lot of different individuals. Um, I, I guess you can, I definitely have a, 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 a background with um, musicians in my family. It kind of, skipped over my parents, but my parents did take music lessons. Um, my dad, he's from 
Philadelphia, his mom was a church organist. Like she was teaching piano lessons. And so like, you know, my dad um, went to a high school with some great um, performers such as like the great bassist Stanley Clark, um, the concert pianist um, Leon Bates. And so he had a huge musical, musical background as being around all that stuff. And with my mom, she took piano lessons from my grandfather, um, and he was a concert organist. And so I grew up seeing him practice every day. I saw him giving recitals. Um, When I was starting to get into music, uh, he was still actually touring too. And so it was like awesome kind of seeing that. Um, His mother was actually um, a part of an all-black gospel group, and they were the first uh, black female gospel group to be broadcast on Chicago radio station. And on my grandmother's side of the family, which is my maternal grandmother, her family, um, her name is Summers, and the Summers Hotel and Subway Lounge, um, it was a it was a big deal in um, the civil rights movement. It was the first black um, owned hotel in Jackson, Mississippi, and especially around those times, um, black musicians who were touring like on the Chitlin circuit, as they used to call it back then. Of course, there's only limited places where they could stay. So they were housing um, black musicians. And then it actually turned into a lounge, uh, which was a jazz club. And so it was like really, really active. And like I learned this about my family history um, probably like 17 years ago, like when I was mm. actually a college student um, at the University of Southern Mississippi. And so I just I just thought that was really cool just seeing like all this aspects of like music that has been like before me, which has been really awesome. Um, I started band in the fifth grade. I actually didn't even start on trombone. I started on baritone. And, um, you know, the typical situation when you're trying out different instruments, like they put a trumpet mouthpiece on me and I'm like, no, that's not happening. Couldn't make a sound. <laughs> um, I was fortunate because and actually I should rewind. I did take piano lessons. So that was like my foundation. Um, thank sure, goodness sure. I, I had, you know, musicians in the family. So that was awesome. So by the time I was, you know, starting band, I was already reading music anyway and, and knowing how to read rhythms and whatnot. And so um, I switched to trombone in the sixth grade because the person who was like one of my classmates who was playing trombone quit. There was no trombone player in our sixth grade band. And I just loved the instrument. It looked so cool. There was no other instrument like it. You had a slide. So I asked the band director, I'm like, hey, can I play that? Because that looks really cool. And we switched to trombone, but I was actually keeping up baritone and trombone at the same time. And that bled all the way into junior high and high school, too. And one thing that was always very important, I had parents that were always supportive. So they made sure I was always taking private lessons. So from the very beginning, I I was taking lessons from the best teachers. And so when my family moved to Memphis, Tennessee, I was in the seventh grade. They automatically, you know, were like, who's the best trombone player in town? And I started taking lessons with Greg Lescombe, who is still the principal trombone of the Memphis Symphony Orchestra. And like that was huge for me, just taking lessons, um, just working on fundamentals. He was a fantastic and still is a fantastic fundamentals teacher. Uh, He came from the Chicago school, studying with a lot of the Chicago Symphony trombonists. So I feel like a lot of that pedagogy 
was kind of ingrained in me as mm. a 13 year old. That's pretty and, good. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and be honest, and even, you know, I went to, you know, different colleges and grad schools, a lot of that pedagogy that I learned from him, I still use to this day, um, which was, you know, fantastic as far as like the concept of sound, breathing, buzzing and all that, all that stuff. Um, when I got into high school, I joined the Memphis Symphony, um, the Memphis Youth Symphony. And to be honest with you, that's when things started to, to change because I was surrounded around fantastic musicians. My, my high school didn't have an orchestra at the time. So first time playing with string musicians. And I remember my freshman year, we played Shostakovich five. Um, that was the big one that stuck out. And I remember I was a tenor trombone player at the time, and there was no bass trombone player in the Memphis Youth Symphony. I was playing the third part. And our youth orchestra director was a tuba player, and he just always wanted more from me. And I just felt so low because like my low range was not great. I was a freshman in high school and, you know, he's hearing like these fantastic recordings and he's like, I want you to sound like that. I'm like, man, I don't have it. I'm playing on a, like a bot 5G, like it's not happening. <laughs> you know, yeah. fast forward, like when I actually switched to bass trombone, I'm like, oh, that's what he wanted. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that experience and because I was affiliated with the youth orchestra, I was able to get scholarships to go to Interlaken and Brevard in high school. I was just surrounded around great peers and teachers. And it was then that I knew that I wanted to do music. I wanted to go into music. And um, I know with a lot of you know family situations, some people might say, well, why do you want to go into that? But I never had that backlash with my family. Like they were always supportive with that. And I went to the University of Southern Mississippi as a music ed major initially because all of my, you know, that was the thing you do. All your my all state friends we were all, you know, majoring in music ed. That was the thing to do. Um, I went there because of the ensembles and my undergrad professor. Um, she like she showed me a lot of attention. We had a rapport because I went to an honor band all four years of high school. So I, I really knew her um, by the time I actually auditioned for the school. And that was when I actually switched to bass trombone. I switched to bass trombone probably, golly, like five or six weeks into the first semester of my freshman year. And I was definitely, I was a little nervous about that. Um, the reason why that whole situation came up, there were supposed to be four people in my freshman class. And my you know, teacher always wanted to try to bring in like a quartet, three tenor players and a bass trombone player. Well, the guy who was supposed to be the bass Ramon player in my freshman class got in a serious car accident the summer prior, and so he couldn't show up. Luckily, he survived, but he just didn't end up showing up. So my teacher wanted to have a bass Ramon player in the freshman class. Um, she thought that um, I would be a great candidate for that, and I did have a natural aptitude for the bass voice. Um, I didn't even bring up that I actually was playing a lot of bass guitar um, my dad is a minister, mm. so I, I I was playing bass guitar and trombone around the same time. Started playing bass guitar in, in the sixth grade, and so like you know I naturally was just hearing a lot of like the bass tones anyway. But sure. I remember one of my classmates let me look at one of his bass trombone mouthpieces, which was the equivalent of a toilet bowl. Put it to my face, and automatically I was discouraged. I'm like this is not happening. This thing is huge. I can't center a tone on there. And so I was like, no, no way. There's no way I'm switching to bass. Like, you know, pretty happy with my tenor trombone playing. 
And she convinced me, like I was playing on a Bach 42 at the time that I had uh, for like six years. And everybody in the studio was playing Edwards. And she said, well, you know, like the studio is due for a new Edwards bass trombone. Like, would you consider switching to bass if I got a new Edwards for the studio? I'm like, absolutely, I'll switch to bass. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was huge for me, just getting, you know, the opportunity to have a new, new bass trombone. And Ryan, man, I'll tell you, when I switched to bass, I was hooked. Yeah. I um, I was a complete nerd. Like one, I mean, Charlie Vernon was like my hero. Like I had opportunities to work with him uh, in high school at Brevard. And so like that was a sound concept that I was like always listening to, not just for bass trombone, but just period, because, you know, he plays all the trombones great, alto and tenor. And um, I started listening to his CDs, Doug Yo, Blair Bowling. They were, they were my heroes. I was in the in the library just soaking up sound like all yeah, the time. Right. And I was, you know, at that time, I was also, I remember the university orchestra was playing Bruckner 8. And I was like, man, that is awesome. You know, I mean, I already had all this orchestral experience in high school, but then just listening to the bass trombone role, I was enamored in that role. And not to mention in the jazz big band, which is also a huge passion of mine. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember I was in the second jazz band and I remember going to every first jazz band rehearsal, just sitting down and soaking up like articulations and sound because I didn't have a jazz band when I was in high school either. The most jazz experience I had was youth symphony concerts when we would play pops concerts like um, String of Pearls, like Tommy Dorsey and um, <laughs> Glenn Miller and stuff like that. So I thought yeah. that was that was jazz, you know. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I was just a complete nerd and just I wanted to play all the rep, you know, listening to all the CDs. And I had all my recitals already mapped out for my entire undergraduate career. I'm like, I wanted to play this piece and that piece. And so I was on that track. And my sophomore year, I decided to switch to performance because I just realized I, I didn't want to teach uh, students that weren't serious. And you know, I remember going back to my old high school, like helping out with band camp. And either it was, you know, the students already knew me because I was already there before. But I'm like, man, like, this is a raucous. I don't know if I if, you know, if I'm going to teach, I just want to teach serious students that are just as passionate about this thing like I am. And so I switched to performance and, you know, I just went that went that trail um, in undergrad. I had a huge amount of um, experience playing with regional orchestras. Um, I won my first regional orchestra job with the Meridian Symphony in Meridian, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That time, that time, um, I was subbing with the Mississippi Symphony, Mobile Symphony, Gulfport, and so it was just great as a college student, still able to be able to perform a lot, like in the orchestral sector. So. That was my track. You know, I wanted to, you know, just take auditions. You know, I, my dream was to play in a symphony orchestra. And so fast forward when it's time to um, audition for grad school and I'm going to the University of Texas at Austin. And that was a great experience in itself. I mean, Austin is a very vibrant musical city. A lot of great things going on. Um a lot of different orchestras, jazz, and to be honest with you, I really started getting into the jazz sector first before um, before orchestra. Um, and so, with that, like I was subbing with a lot of different big bands, you know, just just being on the scene, just 
just networking, just showing up to the gigs. And yeah, it was a lot of jazz stuff. And so I was almost getting pigeonholed. I'm like, oh, he's a jazz guy. That's what he does. Like, no, like I'm getting a classical education. You know, that's my focus. (laughs) But um, but yeah, you know, the goal still was to to do that. And in Texas, you can actually make a pretty good living just teaching private lessons. So in addition to like fellowships and assistantships, like that's what I was doing to pay rent. And I mean, everybody knows in Texas, music education is huge. And so, I mean, I was fortunate. I mean, my first year I was teaching at an an amazing independent school district and just naturally I love helping people and I love music. So I found, Oh, this is a great way that I can do both um, and help people. Um, just get better at their instrument. And so I just, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed seeing my students get better. And after my first year, my master's, you know, and I was seeing what my teachers were doing, like my undergraduate trombone professor, Dr. Marta Hothaker, and my graduate trombone professor, Dr. Nathaniel Brickens. And I'm like, man, like, I would love to do what they're doing because they're still performing, but they're teaching, like, you know, the serious students have very serious studios. And so that's when I was thinking, you know, maybe I could stick around UT and get a doctorate. And at the time, if you, if master students did stick around, like most of the classes transferred, so you could really knock out the degree pretty quickly. And so that's when I decided um, to stick around and get my doctorate degree. I was very fortunate the first year of my doctorate, I got my first university position at Houston Tillotson University. And man, that was crazy because I was going, I was going to teach class, all right, because Houston Tillotson is also in Austin and it's basically separated by Interstate 35. I would mm-hmm. teach class and then I would drive over and take a class. And so just going back and forth, man, was crazy. Um, like having that teacher hat, you know, trying to learn how to be a professor and then also having the student hat on top of that. And it was at Houston Tillotson, like my position was director of instrumental activities and I was doing everything. I mean, I was charged with creating this instrumental program, but they had me teaching like two classes of music appreciation. I was teaching music history, music theory woodwind techniques wow Um, yeah man no and i'm not a woodwind player whatsoever (laughs) and so like i was uh, grabbing my friends who were the teaching assistants for the woodwind methods class i'm like hey can can i borrow your materials because i don't know what i'm doing like every week i would bring in like my friends who were killing it i'm like can you demonstrate for my students um, so they know what a flute is supposed to sound like, what a bassoon is supposed to sound like. And so, I mean, I was just working with what I had. Yeah. But yeah. To, to be honest with you, that's when I learned. I knew I started to learn how to recruit because, I mean, it, it was a private school that was extremely expensive. And I was I mean, it was important for me to keep a job. So I had to have students to keep a job. And right. so like I was going everywhere. I went back to my hometown in Memphis, Tennessee. I was recruiting students. And and then that's where I learned like you have to know what type of students to recruit. And it was, it's really like you're a college football coach and you have to know the strengths of where you're teaching. 
I mean, I was selling it. I mean, my off I could look outside of my office and you could see the Texas State Capitol. I mean, it's it was a beautiful atmosphere on the side of East Austin. Um, Houston Tillotson University is a historically black college and university. And so I knew that I was going to be competing with the Prairie Views, the Texan, the Texas Southerns that are already like extremely established in Texas. And those universities are based in Houston. Um, my university at the time didn't have a marching band. So I'm like, OK, I know a lot of students really want to have that marching band aspect of the HBCU. So I had to I try to get students who weren't really into the marching band aspect. And by my second year, I was able to recruit like five new students. And that was huge. The university loved that. That turned, mm-hmm. and I didn't mention, that was I started out as an adjunct. That turned into an actual full-time job with benefits my second year due to the recruitment. And right. That's awesome. The, and so I was just finding different things for these students to to do. So I, I was finding different competitions um, that they can be involved with. And I was there for three years. And by the time I left, the instrumental program was very thriving. It was awesome. I was taking them to different conferences. I took them to New York City, um, Atlanta, Georgia. And like it, it was a name, which was awesome. But... I always wanted a studio, like a trombone studio, just like, you know, the atmosphere I was in when I was in school. And so um, an opening happened at Henderson State University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, and I won that job. And that was a great experience. I got to move home, oh, not home, but closer to home. I was three hours from Memphis, um, had an opportunity to actually have a low brass studio. I was teaching not just trombone, but tuba. Uh, I had an adjunct at the time that was teaching teaching euphonium. Um, I inherited a fantastic studio. Uh, my predecessor um, just did an amazing job there. And I was only there for one year. And then my current job um, had an opening. And so I came to Texas State and been there since. And like I was also charged for like recruiting a lot of students. And so at a school like Texas State, I was familiar with it because, I mean, I went to UT Austin. Texas State was like maybe 25 minutes away. And so, I mean, we have 38,000 students. So I knew like, oh, I mean, it should be easy to recruit at this large university. I mean, it's bigger than most flagships. And so, I mean, I just took what I already had. There were already good students there. And then I just kept going with that. I just took what I already had and just expanded. And um, I remember at the time um, I had a colleague because I was I was worried about recruitment because, yeah, I'm, I'm competing with all of these great trombone studios in the state of Texas. You know, I have to give people give them a reason. Why do they want to come to this university? And I remember at the time I had a colleague who said, well, you know, we'll just be happy if you just bring if you were able to recruit six students and get them to come here. I'm like, OK. And so um that year, I had 31 students audition, and I was just cold calling and just, you know, going to the all states and just contacting a lot of students. And out of those 31 students that audition, actually, 13 of them came. And so my studio went from five the fall semester of 2010 to I was teaching 18 um, mm-hmm. the fall the, the following fall. And so, yeah, man, um, it's it's been fat, fantastic. I mean, we take great pride in our studio culture at Texas State. And, um, yeah, I mean, 
the freelance opportunities. I mean, my students get to freelance all the time, which I think is awesome. It's just been just been great so far. Yeah, that's amazing. That it, I'm really thankful that you kind of did the whole the whole thing because it there are many many things I thought while you were telling me that, and I'm going to try to remember all of them. But the one I'd like to focus on right now is when I was younger, I um, I kind of knew I wanted to play in an orchestra. I had made that decision, and I was very singularly minded, this is what I want to do. For you to have so many different interests or opportunities, or you're just open to all sorts of different opportunities, what sure. sort of guiding principle was was helping you decide like how am I going to move forward if you seem to be able to comfortably go from I would like to, to be in an orchestra oh big bands are kind of interesting oh teaching is definitely like what was guiding you throughout that whole time to make sure you were moving forward in the way that you felt like was right for you in your life to be honest with you it started in school I mean as far as back as undergrad but Really, I mean, and this could be a detriment, too, for some people. You just have to know how to balance this. But I was saying yes to everything um, because I wanted to play in all styles. I remember, especially in high school, I really wasn't that interested in jazz anyway. I was really just classically focused in symphony orchestra. And my dad told me, well, like, if you want to eat, like, you shouldn't know how to play all styles and be comfortable with that. And like that always just resonated with me. And so I feel like the practice with that, I mean, just being in school, going from one ensemble to the, to the other, I just liked that. And I mean, I was in school, I went to school st- through, through school straight. So freshman all the way through the doctorate, that was nine years of school. And mm-hmm. it was always the same. I remember at UT, I mean, I would be in the orchestra uh, wind ensemble rotation, which met from 10 to 12. Right after that, I would have like a chamber music coaching from two to three. Right after that, I would have big band rehearsal from three to five. So like, that's all I knew was like, just, all right, put on the other hat, put on the other hat. And that's what I wanted my career to be, to be honest with you. Like I, I didn't want to be pigeonholed into one thing. And if someone asked me like, well, what do you like the most? I still can't tell you because I love sitting in the orchestra. I mean, I love sitting in the orchestra. I love sitting in all these different ensembles, but I love my role as the team player. All right. Because I mean, especially sitting in the, in the bass trombone role, I mean, we don't have that. I mean, we're a supporting instrument anyway. And so I like, you know, working with other people and working with different sections. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's just, that's what just does it for me. And I always try to tell my students, you don't have to do what I do. Now, granted, that can lead to other work. I mean, when it came to a lot of orchestral work at the time, um, I was getting called to do a lot of pops, pops, pops concerts initially because people knew, oh, he can play in that style um, and not really stick out. And sitting in those pops concerts led to more of the, I don't want to say serious concerts, but like some of the classical, the Masterworks series. And so, um, yeah, I'm just, I don't really feel like it's one of those jack of all trades, master of none. I mean, I feel like it's really, you have to do, you have to practice both a lot. And one of my huge heroes growing up was Wynton Marcellus, because I was just amazed how he could do both. 
extremely well. And when I was at UT Austin, Ray Sasaki was uh, the trumpet professor at the time, and he right. did both extremely well. And I would play gigs with Ray, like on both sectors. Like he would sit behind me in a big band and blow solos like Curtis Fuller. But then, you know, like sit, like we would do like a brass quintet like gig together, and he's like laying it down. I'm like, man. Like I have work and I would ask Ray, I'm like, how do you do this? And he's like, oh, you just, you have to practice double. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So then what sacrifices come with that? Right. Because that's a lot of time it's going to take to practice both of them. If you're saying yes to everything, you're have a lot, you're, a lot of your time is taken by rehearsals and gigs. And then again, if you're practicing both your practice time, what, what sacrifices come with that, that you feel like somebody else who's saying no to some things might be afforded that you were saying, you know what, this is the most important thing to me. What were you sacrificing? Absolutely. Well, uh, one thing I definitely sacrificed some of my instruments for sure. Like I was playing bass a lot, um, especially more like in the gospel choir sector. I mean, I played bass um, with the Southern Mississippi gospel choir, the University of Texas gospel choir. And I started to pick up tuba um, in grad school because the jazz orchestra director wanted me to play tuba, and I knew that that was kind of the role for that. And so, like, I literally, I just quit playing bass cold turkey. And, I mean, I remember when I got married, I sold both of my basses. So that was a sacrifice. Um, I knew that... I'm not going to take. I'm not going to say that I'm serious about one, more serious about one thing or the other, but if anything that was sacrificed, like maybe like the jazz stuff, because I was getting into improvisation. I was taking improv, improvisation lessons in uh, graduate school, and I knew like okay, like I really want to focus more on this sector, especially you know I'm looking at a university position. Like I. Like at the time, like those university positions, like that's more of what they were trying to hire, like someone who could, yeah, like maybe direct a big band. And that was a part of my roles at Texas State when I first got there. But someone who can teach um, music education students, performance majors, how to play the excerpts and whatnot. So. So, yeah, I mean, it comes to a point in your career where you do have to figure out, like, OK, I think I'm going to, you know, take off the weights and then maybe put up, you know, put more weights on this one thing. I mean, Wynton Marcellus did the same thing. I mean, that's why you're not seeing him put out, you know, like albums like the the Hummel and the Hyatt Concerto anymore. And he's focusing more on that. And I remember him saying you, it's extremely difficult to do both at a high level. Right. Yeah. So it just sounds like you it's almost as you were going to just take all of it really seriously until you got to a point where it sort of weeded itself out almost. And you kind of saying I took all of this seriously and so I it's helping guide me in the direction that I eventually that I wanted to go is that something sort of right yeah absolutely and I think that was something that I had to really figure out myself I mean it, I didn't have a teacher that said that oh maybe you should just focus on this one thing you know you're you're doing too much jazz and I've heard that a lot you know I've heard that from like I'm not going to say my necessarily my colleagues, but just you hear stories. Uh, you're taking this jazz thing too seriously. Like maybe you know, kind of just focus on this classical thing. You know, like I never had teachers that, t that told me that. I mean, they were supportive of everything, but yeah, you when you start doing a lot of things, you know your limits, and then you know, like okay, like I need to be able to master one one of these things well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally agreed, and I think it's an it's it's just an interesting perspective to have that we don't. I made that choice early before I really knew what I was 
saying, right? And so it's right. an interesting difference to say, well, I'm just going to expose myself to as many different things and that my maybe my passion or the thing that I really like the most or whatever you want to say kind of brings itself out after having spent some time doing it. So I also want to then tie in your work with your wife, because obviously being a husband is now another thing that's added to the pile of responsibilities. And so Mm -hmm. um, I'm imagining not that you're going to, that there's, we only have a certain amount of time to do it all. Right. And so if being a husband and now being a duo with your wife is important to you, uh, how did how does that work in? How does that fit into what you do with your job and your freelancing career and the things that you do? How does that all fit in together? Man, um, out of everything, I would definitely say that I enjoy that the most, obviously. Um, especially, I mean, she's a monster musician. I mean, she's just ridiculous. I mean, amazing training and amazing teacher. Um, she's on the faculty um, at the University of Memphis where she's the coordinator of piano, um, piano studies there. And the ideas that she brings to the table, especially when we're, when we're working together and we're, um, and we're in rehearsals, you know, it's like we kind of put egos aside, just like any other chamber ensemble. But of course, that's like a different dynamic when you're working with your spouse. Right, but, yeah, definitely. Man, like I feel like that, I mean, it's just so cohesive. And I mean, it's at the point, I mean, she knows when I'm going to breathe or, you know, I know when certain things are going to happen with her or in the middle of a situation, say, if a note is not going to censor, she knows already. And then she knows how to make me sound better (laughs) on Mm, the piano. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so, man, it's just it's amazing when you play with someone that much and you don't even have to say anything. It's like, all right, let's let's just do the thing. Yeah, that's, I mean, it makes sense to be able to play, but also then having the personal connection too would just enhance it that much more. That's, that's a really good point. I, I like that. Uh, you said she's in Memphis. So like you guys work in two different places then it sounds like. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So how does uh, that work? Is she there more? What's that, what's that arrangement like? And how much time do you guys get to spend together outside of possibly your jobs and your performing career to be able to just like be husband and wife for a second? Absolutely. And so, um, like I mentioned, like Memphis is my hometown. I grew up here. My, my, my family's here. And I just finished year 10 at Texas State. She just finished year four. And so um, when she got the job, I mean, we just thought, you know, this is my hometown. You know, we can just kind of like uproot and be in Memphis and I could be the one. And, and thing is, like, she's from from Texas, which is hilarious. You know, she's working yeah. in my home state. And I'm working in hers. And um, and yeah. And so basically, like I fly like every week um, to teach my students and I'll I'll be uh, in Texas, like maybe three, four times out of the week. And, you know, of course, it's nice to have flexibility. So if I have some freelancing going on in Texas, you know, I can uh, work out my schedule accordingly. She has gigs in Texas, too, because she has a lot of connections there. She's worked um, in in Texas and family. So we do that. Um, Like I said, being from Memphis, like I freelance quite a bit um, with all the different orchestras and the jazz groups um, over in Memphis. And so. So, yeah, man, I mean, it's it's great. And especially with this whole covid situation, I mean, this has been a bizarre year. I mean, cuz last fall I was actually on sabbatical, and so like I was definitely in Memphis more anyway. And then, you know, I went back to work in the spring and what worked like 7 weeks and then all right. this stuff hit the fan. So, yeah, it's been bizarre and I mean, we're probably going to have to do um 
remote teaching again in the fall. So and so, yeah, like we've been seeing each other all the time, which has been great. And I guess the silver lining with this whole pandemic. Right, right. Yeah, but yeah, you know, so I'm good. To, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Oh no, no, it's cool. But, um, but yeah, we get to tour with each other too, and so that's a nice thing. So oh, yeah, um, yeah, we do duo things a lot. But say if I'm playing with an orchestra, I've been going out to Malaysia quite a bit and subbing within the last couple of seasons. She has connections in Asia, so we'll kind of roll all that into one. And we're like, all right, let's, you know, on my break, let's go fly to, to Bangkok and do a recital. And let's go, go go to Hong Kong and do a recital. So we do a lot of that. Or she has a gig lined up. You know, I'll travel with her, you know, line up some master classes or recital. So, yeah, man, it's, you know, it's been awesome that, you know, one, that you have a spouse in the industry who gets it. So, I mean, she understands like, look, you know, I have to be out here for a few weeks. Students have recitals and there's a lot of things going on in addition to touring. And especially when you're married to someone in the industry, it's nice when they get it. Um, and you know, they're not complaining because yeah, I mean, they have the same situation. Do you see yourself being this busy long-term? Like it's just gotta be hard to be flying all over the place, playing all over the place, doing everything. Just do you see yourself being able to maintain that long term? What would give you that kind of energy or ability to just keep going? Man, Ryan, to be honest with you, I love being busy and I've always been like this. I mean, it really spurs back to undergrad. I mean, when undergrad, I wasn't your typical music major that was in the music building all the time. I mean, I was, you know, I practiced my tail off, but I was I was involved with a lot of different things, like student organizations. Like I was in student government association. I mean, I was involved in my fraternity. When I went to graduate school, uh, actually, my fellowship, my uh, my first year was the Center for African American Studies. And so, you know, typically, especially with a master student, you're only in the music building. That's it. That wasn't my situation. So I was able to meet other people in other, you know, different sectors of the university. So I've always just been like, bam, 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 everything. And to be honest with you, I, I thrive on being busy. And of course, with all the, this pandemic that's happened, I've definitely enjoyed the break for sure. Because, um, I mean, I'm on an airplane every week. But yeah, this has been since March 3rd, since I've been on an airplane. And I am missing that now, just like the airport hustle and bustle and whatnot. But um, I I know some people have not really taken this pandemic lightly as far as like being busy. And then there's been depression with this, too, especially musicians like losing work and some musicians who are very goal oriented. But yeah, you know, I'm just taking the punches. Um, I love being busy. If, if things could get back to how they were even in January, yeah, bring it on. But um, but I've definitely been embracing things slowing down too, just to kind of reflect. And I feel like taking like my sabbatical in the fall was definitely refreshing and I was able to recharge the batteries. And so I think that definitely helped me for sure. Um, because so you're like I a mean, work if, hard, play hard kind of guy, it seems like. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I, I love it. You know, I mean, not everybody's like that, but I love it. So we're just going to dig a little deeper here. What do you think, if you had to, maybe you can't, if you can't, that's completely fine. But if you had to say, point to something or some person in your life, maybe that you admired that was like 
working hard and and being busy or not necessarily being busy as like a thing, but just like that they were do they were active, they were trying, they were they were working hard. What do you think is the reason that you've always been this way if you can kind of point to something? Because for me, I've become busier. <clears throat> excuse me, I've become busier. I was not always this way, but I've become busier because I understand that I have like a purpose that I can serve and that fuels my desire and drive to spend long hours doing work. But if you've always been this way, right, and it's just been a part of who you are, I'm curious if there is something that maybe was like at an early age, some sort of influence that you could point to that sort of just sort of unconsciously shifted you. And does that make sense what I'm asking? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I grew up seeing this. So I'll definitely say the men in my family, I'll mention my my dad, and then my maternal, um, my grandfather, uh, my dad, as I mentioned before, um, he's he's a minister. And so of course, I saw, you know, him doing that. But he also was a professor in theology. So he taught at seminary. And then he was also a chaplain in the Navy. So he was a commander. And so I always just saw my dad doing a bunch of stuff. And so, um, yeah, like that was that was just huge. And I mean, if, you know, he was providing for his family. But all of those things were things that he loved that were all intersected into his ministry. With my grandfather, as I mentioned before, he uh, was a concert organist, um, and he was the director of a, um, he was the music director of a church, but also for many, many, many years, um, he worked for a post office too. And so I remember like, and he would do like the late night shift. So I remember like him waking up in the middle of the night to go to the post office. And then, you know, come back home, sleep. And then he would go to church to practice organ. I mean, like that was all the time. And he would always, like my my grandparents used to have an organ in their in their house. Um, and I think they got rid of that or gave it to a family member maybe 30 years ago. And so he would always have to drive to the church, like on the south side of Chicago. And the church from their place was maybe like a 20 minute drive. Sometimes he would do that twice a day, um, would go drive to the church. In addition to, he was still um, on tour because he was one of the chief engineers for Allen Organ. And they were like one of the first digital organs in the business. So like he was constantly on tour. So and I've seen these two men in my family having all these different hats and all these different jobs. No one ever said, like, you have to do all this stuff. I just saw it all the time. <laughs> I was embraced yeah. in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask that question, like, sort of as a joke when you described all of the things that you do. <laughs> I was going to ask as a joke, like, who told you it was okay to do all that stuff? But it's yeah. very clear that nobody, <laughs> I mean, like, it just was normal for you to see that. I think that's really fascinating. Um and then, so if these men in your life influenced you such, do you feel that there's not necessarily a responsibility, but that that's part of what you are as an educator to be able to model and demonstrate that for your students? Not just, I teach you trombone, but I want to show you the possibilities of what you can, and we're not going to limit, we're not going to say you can't do something because I never thought that myself, and we need more of that in the world. That's a great question, and that's a huge motto of mine. Um, you know, I want to show my students, one, hard work is is huge. Um, when I'm even accepting a student into the studio, I'm not, you know, talent, that's, that's important, but that can only take you so far. Like, I want people who have a crazy work ethic because, I mean, that's just 
what I am. Like I work my tail off. And I mean, there's sometimes where when I'm on campus, I mean, I could leave at nine o'clock at night, like one of the last people leaving, leaving the building. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I just don't want them to be just great trombonists or great musicians, but, you know, work hard. Um, If they're going to be a music educator, I want them to be able to pour into their students and know that, yeah, it's going to, it's not going to be like a nine to five job. Like you're going to have to do a lot more than that. Or if they're going to be teaching, I have a lot of students who are teaching right now and I want them to okay, just don't punch the clock, you know. Um, Yes, you will have some students who are not going to be serious, but we still have to pour into them. And those students who might not go into music, they might be our patrons in the future. And so, like, just showing them, you know, why music is important and the love for it is is huge, in in my opinion. So, yeah, and I also want my students to know that, yeah, take your craft seriously, but have a balanced life too, because yeah, I mean, you're going to want to have uh, a family. You're going to want to do other things. Like I do so many other things outside of music, which I think has helped me personally just stay balanced. So I'm not burnout because the burnout is huge. I mean, and I feel like a lot of people go through it, but, um, but yeah, just having a balanced life in general is, is, yeah, huge. we'll talk about that. And just, I want to ask you about that in just a second, but before we do, I want to ask you, I believe, uh, like, like you described with the men in your family, like the model, like seeing this happen is so mm-hmm. much more, in my belief, so much more impactful than just saying you should be this way or you should do this. Have you gotten any feedback from any students over the 10 years that you've been teaching that would say, I saw you doing the thing that you talked to us about doing and that like I saw you doing the gigs and playing with your wife and doing the conference. And that like was just as much inspiration as you saying that I could do it. Seeing you doing it helped the you saying that I could do. Have you gotten any feedback that that's been true or is it sort of just like you're hoping and believing that that is true, but you were not? Because very, in my experience, very few times do we get that feedback that somebody, (laughs) we've influenced somebody. So basically I'm just asking, have you gotten feedback that that has ended up being true for you and your students? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, students who like um, were currently in the studio and then also students who, you know, graduated. And I mean, that's big because, um, I mean, you never know like what, what they're thinking. I'm like, oh, like, you know, he's gone all the time, but no, I mean, they, they love that. You know, I had a former student saying, you know, I'd really like to, you know, say that, you know, I had a teacher that was, you know, in different countries and just doing all this stuff because, you know, that's what I'm doing right now. And as a teacher, I think it is extremely important if I'm going to be teaching students how to perform, I have to be doing that. You know, they have to see that I'm performing. Um, and I just think it's, it's, I mean, there's a lot of great teachers out there who aren't performing or, um, you know, had a great performance career who aren't doing as much of that. But, you know, I'm, I'm younger and I feel like I need to be able to still do that so I can teach them how to do that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's, I think it's a, a bit of a responsibility. I don't think people need to be playing in the New York Philharmonic to prove that they are able to perform, but I think uh, it, it lends a certain level of credibility when you're yeah. doing the thing that you're trying to help other people do, which I think is which is awesome. And I'm glad that you uh, that you were able to sort of share about that. Um, what kinds of things do you do for outside of music that sort of fills you up as a human being that has nothing to do with the trombone? You were just mentioning what kinds of things are those? 
Yeah, I do. I do a lot of things. Uh, well, I mean, before the pandemic hit, um, going to sporting events like that is just extremely soothing to me. And I'll, I'll go to anything. Um, like I was really huge into golf and soccer coming up. And um, I mean, I actually like went to college like on a golf scholarship and a music scholarship, um, but started to take trombone more seriously going back to that whole you know you have to sacrifice some things like i knew that music was going to be serious so you know golf kind of went to the side but i got still golf um that's like a thing that me and my dad do um together and i'm not have you been to top golf no well actually yeah i have yeah i have been to top golf only been there once though but that's pretty that's a hip place yeah i love top golf yeah it makes me feel like i could do it that's how much i like top golf even though i can't (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, just the whole vibe of that place is awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, there's there's one in Austin, but there's not there's not one in, in Memphis. No, um, sorry, I interrupted. But I no, 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 no. You're you're good, man. <laughs> uh, I'm not a huge baseball fan. I mean, my dad is loves baseball, but I go to baseball games like all the time. So like the Round Rock Express, which is. Um, Round Rock is a suburb of Austin, and um, the Memphis Redbirds I grew up going to see. I uh, went to a White Sox game when we were in Chicago last summer. Um, going to Memphis Grizzlies, like a huge Grizzlies fan. Just going to everything, man, is is huge. Just, just a way to um, just kind of get away from music. I'm a big boxing fan. Um, grew up, you know, loving the movie Rocky. It's like my, definitely my, like my favorite movie of all times. Um, a huge boxing fan. Cause that's what my dad watched. I mean, he's from Philadelphia, like home of, you know, the great Joe Lewis. And of course where Rocky was based. And so just, just grew up loving, loving boxing. Um, outside of sports, I love barbecue. Um, I've always loved barbecue. And now that I live in two barbecue capitals between Texas and Memphis. Um, I love meshing the two together. Um, I always loved eating it, but now like I'm trying to perfect it. And my goal is to do barbecue competitions once like all this stuff um, gets back to somewhat normal. So I've been working on like competition entries and working on it, like trying to make my presentations competition style. That's so cool. Yeah. And so, and you know, I treat it really just like learning a fundamental music skill. I mean, there's like a certain way that I might want to do brisket or a certain way that I might want to get the perfect color of my chicken. And so it's trial and error, you know, just practicing over and over again. And so, um, and my wife said a couple of days ago, she's like, you've been making a lot of chicken. And that's really been a lot of my Instagram feed recently. Cause yeah, I'm trying to perfect the, the chicken category at the, at the moment. And so right, I don't yeah. think, think about to start focusing on like other meats now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Martin, I'm a busy guy and you are, it sounds like you just have so much more going on. I need you to teach me how to manage all of these things <laughs> so you don't forget this. You have time for all the different things. Cause like I said, I'm becoming busier. I'm about to start. I think I have a camera. We painted this room. I start about, about to start doing like YouTube content and stuff. That's going to nice. add a whole nother level of it. Right. So I need you to teach me how you manage all your time and how you make sure you don't forget about stuff and you're ready and prepared for all the stuff you got to do. Cause it's, you have to have some sort of way of doing this with the amount of busy you are and for how long you've been doing it. Absolutely. Um, one thing that I can say, I can say a lot of things, but self-care is huge. And so I always make sure that I'm pouring into myself first and self-care is not selfish whatsoever. 
Um, if I, I mean, I, I can't pour into my students. I mean, that's a huge responsibility to me. I can't pour into them from an empty glass. And so, uh, I mean, my students like know this, that I don't teach until one o'clock in the afternoon. And so I would have already practiced at least two hours before I've gone to work. Um, pouring into myself, um, I'm a Christian. I, I read the Bible. I, you know, I, I meditate. I pray. I have to do all that stuff before I go to work. Because if that's not in sync, it's not going to be a good day for anybody. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to be able to give my all. And so, and I always tell my students, I mean, I don't give them 100%. I give them 150%. Like, I always, like, go in um, with them. And um, so, it's like, that, that is huge, um, just pouring into to yourself, self-care. Um, so what, is, what could that be? I mean, well, I already, you know, mentioned, like, meditation. Working out is huge, too. I mean, especially, like, the older I get, and people say, like, man, you're, you make all that barbecue. Are you eating all that stuff? Or, like, you're gaining weight? Like, actually, no, I don't eat, do that all the time. Like, I usually give it away a lot. You know, like, if I'm cooking on a Saturday, usually I'm driving it to my parents' house, giving it to them on Sunday, or it's in the freezer. But uh, working out a lot helps. And really, I, I think I learned how to manage my time, even in school, because I was accountable for every hour of the day. So before there was Google Calendar and iCalendar, you know, had the actual physical pen and, right. uh, pencil and paper. And I would say, OK, I'm warming up here. I'm going to eight o'clock theory. I'm eating breakfast. I'll do everything, homework, practice sessions, working. I mean, I had jobs like outside of music when I was in when I was in school in undergrad. And I even managed, I put in time to hang out with my friends because I think that was important too, uh, just to have a balanced life. And so writing all that stuff down is huge. Um, if there's something that I need to uh, do like even with this pandemic, I have a lot of things that, like things I need to record right now. Like I have a reminder sheet, you know, on like on on Apple, the iPhone, and I'll put a time like, all right, like I need to do this. Like this is due today. Um, another thing is boundaries, which is huge. So there is a time where I shut down emails, and my colleagues know if someone sends an email like after five o'clock on a Friday. Chances are I'm not going to respond to it. Like I'll get back to it on Monday morning, and mm -hmm. and you know it's not like uh you know like I just don't want to respond to it. It's just like one of the, you have to protect your boundaries. Like protecting your yeah. energy is huge. And so and my students know. I mean, if they need to contact me, I mean they can text me. Um, like that's like a quick way to to respond because you know I'm not just invested in their time at Texas State. I'm invested in their career. Like after they graduate, but but yeah, I mean. Time management, self-care, um, having boundaries. Like I've been reading this new book, um, and I actually can't even tell you the author's name at the moment, but um, it's just you know, defining boundaries, which is huge. Um, boundaries like in the workplace, boundaries um, like with with religion. Just man, I recommended and like I, I don't know. Um, I think if you just Google like, you know, a book like Beyond Boundaries, just, it comes if up. If you give it to me, I'll put it in the show notes or the blog cool. post after this. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. That's great advice, man. I'm I'm so glad I I'm so glad I asked because it's I, I think until you're intentional about 
implementing boundaries, intentional about structuring your time, intentional about what you do with it and making sure that you especially pour into yourself. I just think it's, you won't do it. Like, I think you have to physically say, you know what, I'm not great at this right now. Just like you would with any, being honest with yourself about a skill on your instrument. I'm not great at this skill, so I need to practice it, right? I need to try and get better at it. And I think I have learned recently that uh, it is a skill that matters, especially if you have goals and you have lots of different hats that you're trying to wear. Like it's a skill that matters. We can't really get away with not doing it. And that's taken me a long time to accept that fact that I have to master the way I handle my boundaries and my schedule. And like, I know what I need so that when people need me, I'm ready for them. And, uh, it's, like I said, it's taken me a while, but I appreciate perspectives like that because, um, I'm finding it to be true in myself. And I think more people need to know that this is, this is what it looks like to be able to be busy and successful. Absolutely. And I actually, I forgot one thing too, um, which I kind of alluded to earlier is saying no, um, as well. Um, so like I have a group of best friends and we always do this brocation and we just go somewhere. And actually the brocation didn't happen last year because, you know, I, I love freelancing and like I was just taking gigs like left and right. And this year, you know, I told myself, like, I'm going to have to say no to a weekend because like the, our brocation is usually on a weekend. And of course, that's when symphony concerts are usually happening. And so I per protected this one weekend, which we actually couldn't do um, because COVID happened. We were supposed to go to Las Vegas, but I told those guys, I'm like, look, I'm going to keep this weekend open just for us. I promise I'm not going to take any gigs. I promise like right after I said that, like within a week in the same day, I was offered to do two different gigs. And I was like, no, <laughs> I can't do it. You know? Yeah, and so, yeah. and even especially having a wife too, like we've, that's one thing we've already discussed. Like sometimes like things are going to have to be protected. Like granted, we both work on the weekends too, freelancing when things are normal, but sometimes we just say, no, we're going to just not take any gigs and we're just going to do things for us. Travel like without the trombone. I mean, she doesn't have to travel with the piano. So it's, you know, it's right, so different. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, that's good. It's, you know, I, what I, I guess what I was getting at earlier about sacrifices and you kind of just touched on that a little bit being, you know, at some point you can't do it all. And at some mm -hmm. point we have to figure out like, what are our priorities? And yes, our instrument is important to us, but you have many other hats that are outside of music that matter to you and being able to understand how to show up for all those things as Karen would say, right? right. Um, being able to know how to show up for all those things makes it so that you are generally a more sort of peaceful and put together person that you're doing all the things you want to do. You're not having to sacrifice who you are for your musician playing self, which Absolutely. would only cause you to resent your musician playing self more, I think. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So this is awesome, man. I'm so yeah. glad we had this <laughs> Good chance conversation. to, uh, yeah, to dig into it. I, I think if you're fine with it, we could transition into talking about uh, discrimination and things like that. We talked, uh, Martin and I talked before about, um, I'll, I guess I'll just be honest. I, I should, I feel like I should start it by being honest and just saying, um, you know, the, the political and social climate of things when like things like George Floyd happen and, and that the tragedy of what it is that it becomes such like a, a politicized thing instead of a thing where we go, this is horrible and we should start listening because it, what we're hearing is that 
this exists and this is not new for, right. for black, for especially people of color, all minorities, but it seems like especially for black people that it's, and so when it's happened in the past, I personally have been able to say, you know what, like that's sad, that's horrible, but it's happening over there. And I realize now that that's a level of privilege I have to be able to say, I, I can choose whether I want to engage with that or not. And I don't... Mm-hmm. <laughs> That was wrong. That was not the right way to handle that. And so the thing I really want to be able to do, hopefully from here on out, is take this platform. And if it is, if there are things that, uh, you know, I interview people who are minorities or women and they uh, have, or obviously it could be white men who have struggled too. But in this particular case, you understand what I'm saying. It's important to me long past the point where people stop posting black Facebook pictures that we continue to have this conversation. Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and so, um, I would, I kind of just want to open up the floor to you, uh, to say, if you have anything just either generalized or specific or just your experiences with what it's like, uh, to be black in America. And then I also would like to talk specifically about the music field, because I feel like in a field that should be very talent and sort of like, effort oriented, I would imagine discrimination and racism can still exist. And so I don't know if I can fix the world right now, but I might be able to expose a little bit of what exists right in our own backyard. And I think if we're aware that it exists in our own backyard, we might at least be able to start to clean up our own house a little bit. So just kind of take it wherever you want to go with it, your experiences, um, some of what that is like for you. Yeah. Um, Awareness is huge, to be honest with you. And I'm going to be honest, when I found out about George Floyd, the first thing that came to my mind was, wow, it happened again. Because, I mean, I I know all the stories, um, you know, but I feel like it took us to be in a pandemic and for us to also be in a recession, um, pretty much. We're sitting at home people were actually watching the TV and people were actually like waking up and saying, wow, there's something serious about this. And this is not the first time that it was recorded on, on a phone. I mean, we can go all the way back to like the Rodney King incident, you know, it was like right. in the early nineties, you know, like this is not the first time, but everybody in the country, I mean, the world was at a standstill, like, okay, this, there's something wrong with this. And, I think it's great. I think it's great that these when you're seeing the protests that are that are happening, like the meaningful, peaceful protests, like I think it's amazing seeing a lot of people who are not a people's uh, persons of color, especially a lot of white people out there protesting. That's huge because it for I mean, black people have been seeing this stuff all the time, to be honest with you. And we can talk about it. But then, yeah, a lot of times people are like. Oh, like you're crazy. Like, no, like there's like there's no racism going on. I'm like, no, there there is. So having allies, allyship is huge. And so um, I think that is one of the first steps is people actually being aware and having true allies now. So like black people aren't fighting this fight by ourselves because we've been fighting this fight for over 400 years. And so, I mean, you know, we just kind of need help with that too. And so, I mean, that's, that's massive. But, um, as far as, I mean, yeah, I mean, 
I feel like one of the stories that really, really got me, though, was um, the Elijah McClain story, because especially he was a musician, too. And, um, you know, I mean, just reading up on this cat, I mean, he was like one of the sweetest cats. And like what happened to him just because someone decided to make a phone call because he was a happy cat, you know, um, who was an extrovert and they thought he looked weird and he had a ski mask on because, you know, he had anemia. I mean, that hurt me to the soul, you yeah. know, and, and I'm like, man, are you are you kidding me? But these are stories that I heard growing up. I mean, I'll, I'll go back to like the men in my life again. I mean, my grandfather, I mean, he was a touring musician and he would tour all over the country. And he like you know, his I mean, he was born in Chicago, but his family was in Mississippi, was born like his family is out of Mississippi. And so he would tour down there and he would tell me stories where he would be on tour um, with the Allen, Oregon representative. And, you know, because like he would have his representative when they're demonstrating the different organs, he would demonstrate, talk about the organ. And of course, um, the representative would make the sale. And there were a lot of times, especially when you're driving in the deep south in the 40s and 50s, a black man like driving by himself, like that wasn't a thing. So and especially a black man driving with a white male in the front seat was not a thing. And so like he had to pretend like he was the driver for his representative, even though he was the artist. Mm. And like, you know, just hearing all these stories and like he couldn't stay in the same hotel as his representative for instance. Um, I remember, uh, well, not a story. I mean, I was there. I was a kid. I had to be like five or six um, when my dad got pulled over by the police. It was like me, like it was my whole family. And um, it was a hot-headed white cop. And I mean, like I said, you know, my dad is is a pastor, you know, professor of theology. And um, he was asked to get out of the car and open the trunk. And I just... You know, I remember not really turning around. My mom said, don't turn around. And I remember like hearing the cop yelling at my dad because like they wanted him to, to see what's in the trunk, but they didn't want him to touch what whatever, you know, was in the trunk and hearing the yelling. And you always hear stories about black parents having to tell their their kids how to react when you get pulled over. And that's when I had that first conversation with my parents on like, how do you have to act? And I remember that vividly this day. And I've had to use that same information. Um, I remember in high school when um, I was working at Schlotzky's Deli and um, like and I would close a lot. So, I mean, when you're closing, I mean, you're getting off. You're leaving work like around midnight. And like one of my friends, we were in band together, a white female, um, didn't have a car and her home was on the way to my home. So I'd always just drop her off. And so, like, you know, we're driving you know, pretty close to her house. A police officer pulls us over and, you know, asked what we were doing. I mean, we smelt like a hamburger. I mean, closing at Schlotzky's Deli and like we're wearing the gear. And it's like, oh, you know, we're working at Schlotzky's Deli as my my hands are on the steering wheel, as I was told, you know, when I was a kid coming up and he left us alone. However, 24 hours later, same scenario. I'm taking my friend home. The same cop pulls us over again. And, you know, just I guess they didn't believe that we were just high school students. You know, we had, you know, we had jobs. And so, I mean, those stories are real, you know, and it's just like the discrimination. I mean, that's that's real and people should be aware of those things. 
do you, I mean, you of course don't have to name names. And if you can't think of an exact example, it's fine. But have there been times in your music career, like not that you've lost out on a gig or something like that, just being in a space with people and feeling like uh, the color of your skin made a difference in some particular way, but music specific, has that existed for you? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, not just for, not just for me, but I mean, a ton of stories. And like, before I talk about my points, um, if, you know, if people are, or the listeners are on Instagram, I mean, it's great now of the climate because now like people are getting exposed. I mean, there are different, um, pages such as, um, orchestra is racist. Opera is racist. I mean, they just reached 10,000 followers last week. Academia is racist. I mean, seeing these stories, like I'm glad that this stuff is getting out there. Um, because I mean, these stories are true, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I've had, I've had situations where like, I actually, like I had an orchestra audition, um, like for a regional orchestra and I've never, I'll never say that I've had a perfect audition, but I was extremely happy on what I presented to the committee. And when, I mean, if there was, there was only like three of us that were in the final round. And then we, um, I was told that, you know, I didn't advance like past that. And I'm like, okay, you know, I was pretty bummed, but you know, of course, you know, not everybody wins the job. Like there's plenty of jobs that I've not won. So I, I'm going to my car. And so, uh, so I can make this drive because I drove five hours for this audition. And then the monitor actually runs out to me as I'm driving out to my car and says, like, look, I'm just going to be honest with you. Take it for what it's worth. You really won that audition. And like, one of the committee members, like, actually looked over the screen. And I'm like, wow, OK. I was like, I, you know, I appreciate that. And I just kept it moving. And of course, like, I felt <laughs> some type of way. But. I know the stories, you know, I mean, I, I know worse stories than that. And so I just kept it moving. And to be honest with you, like how I persevere, I'll go back to Rocky because that's like one of my favorite movie, movies. But one of those one of those quotes um, is, is not how hard you get hit, but how hard you get hit and keep moving forward. And so like whenever, you know, I have some adversity like that. I think that's a way just for me to keep moving forward. And like, and that just pumps me up. I mean, even though it's a pretty uh, crappy um, situation, yeah, yeah. you know, like what do you, what do you do with it? You know, just, you just keep moving forward. Yeah. I've been reading a lot about adversity recently. I read a book called the upside of adversity. And then I read uh, man's search for meaning, which is uh -huh. Victor Frankl's like Holocaust story. And it's fascinating because they both talk about a how suffering and adversity uh, can be used for it can have a purifying effect. Not that in and of itself it is good, but it can cause us to learn and to grow and for goodness to happen. But then also there's like the way in which you suffer. Like you can have dignity in the way in which you suffer. Like, do you have any experiences of that being true, or like, do you do you think about that when like when something like you kind of just described it? So maybe it's just digging into that more. Do you feel like that for you when you experience an, an example like that, the way you react is like some sort of test, if that makes sense, or how? What's your react? What's your relationship with the moment and your reaction? Yeah, I mean, anybody who knows me, I'm I'm actually nat a naturally quiet person. And so I 
you know, the way that I react is definitely, I'm not going to say it's like out of anger because I, I just don't think that's productive either. And that's, you know, that's definitely a waste of energy in my opinion. But I guess that goes back to my crazy work ethic that pumps me up and that makes me work even harder because, you know, mm. it's like one of the situations, well, you know, I'll, I'll show you. I mean, I mean, I've even seen it like on, in the academic sector. I mean, it happens all the time. Like, you know that you're qualified for a certain position. You feel like you definitely want it and then you don't get it. Um, someone who is not as qualified gets the gig. I'm like, okay. Um, I mean, we know what that's all about. And so you just keep moving forward on that. Um, I know a lot of people, I mean, the easy thing to do is quit. And I know a lot of fantastic black musicians who just kind of hung it up. Like, ah, I just, you know, there's no point. And I just, I give up. And I don't think that's a great thing to do either. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I just feel like the way that you are, the way that you react is huge, but making sure that it's positive reaction. And I feel like every every experience is a learning experience regardless of the outcome and so um just learning from some from some of these injustices and what you can do like what can you do to bring change or like be better yeah i'm gonna ask you a really tough question now i hope i hope Uh you're ready for it all right so you said you're a christian i also am a christian how does your spirituality and the fairness of this, like this is basically not fair, like racism is inherently not fair. How does your spirituality fit into this? Like, why would God do this, right? And like, right. I, I know sort of my answer for this, but I'm really curious because it it, it seems so unfair um, that this would be the reality of what it is, but this is the reality. Like, what's your reaction? You just said it's a learning experience. I feel like that's like what my my faith is to a T is like, what am I supposed to learn from this situation? What is God trying to tell me? How does that fit in for you? Like, what does that do in terms of your ability to either cope or whatever you want to say with these injustices? Yeah. Um, so I'll use one point um, from the, the book of Luke. And this is kind of in response when people say, when the response to Black Lives Matter is all lives matter. Um the story of Jesus and the hundred sheep and one went missing. And so you have these 99 sheep that are just kind of off on their own. And so, yeah, like those 99 sheep could say like, what about me? Like, don't our lives matter too? But of course their lives matter, but this one is in danger right now. And so his life, their life matters just a little bit more right now. And so we need to handle that and bring them together. And yeah, so yeah. like that, that's huge. And I forget the, I forget the um, scripture where this comes from, but with everything that's going on and coming to the light, oh man, I really wish I knew what scripture this was, but you know, God talks about this, um, pandemic, this health pandemic, then also like a financial pandemic. I mean, like, I feel like all of this actually had to happen. I mean, a lot of people are saying, oh, 2020 is canceled. Just like, throw it away. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but be honest with you. I mean, the stuff's been going on for centuries. This had to happen. Like we haven't had a pandemic in a hundred years. What? Like 
102 years. And like we had to have this pandemic. And then, of course, you know, we're in this economic crisis right now. And so all of a sudden, everyone's realizing, wow, I mean, well, we knew there was racism, but yeah, it really exists. And like, this is kind of messed up. And so I think it's kind of crazy that this was already prophesied in the Bible anyway. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like an interesting part. Like I hadn't thought about that, that basically people have nothing better to do right now than to sit around and see like what's actually happening right in front of their faces. And that it Mm -hmm. all kind of happened relatively speaking around the same time that there could be eyes, there could be, you know, and then, you know, it wasn't just George Floyd, obviously Breonna Taylor and uh, Ahmad, right? So like all these, like, yeah, a few of them happened right in a row where you, it's almost like you can't ignore it. And the fact that we're, we can't go to work and like distract ourselves or yeah. we're not, you know what I mean? Like there's not, nothing that's, it's like, this is right in front of our face. And like that we should at least consider what it means to deal with it, you know? And that's partially what this is for me. I appreciate you being open. Is like, this is like a way I feel like I can deal with it is to basically give a voice and to say, I have this platform Let's talk about it to say that this is what discourse can look like. And I'm actually not trying to mm-hmm. offer my opinion because I don't really think I need to tell you what I think. I think it's just, we, I watched this, this is, a, this is an aside and I, I, hopefully this isn't me talking too much, but I watched this video by a guy named Dr. George Yancey. Uh-huh. And uh, he wrote a book called Beyond Racial Gridlock, where he kind of talks about the various ways that people respond to racism, things like colorblindness and multiculturalism and stuff like that. And one of the things he said is um, when people, when there's an like an oppression, right, like an abusive relationship, right. that both parties have a, a, a part in the healing but like one party has a little bit more responsibility for the healing than the other party. And so, yes, maybe like it wasn't me specifically oppressing another race, but right. it's like that the, 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 we're not that far away from the civil rights movement and things like that. And oh, so yeah, man. Yeah. it's still like there. And so I feel like in many ways, uh, a response that white people can have is just to ask and bridge that gap and not expect the burden to fall on people of color to say, this is what I think, but to say, I care about you enough that I want to know your experience. Absolutely. And, um, I mean, I grew up, I mean, from, from where I am right now, I can drive 15 minutes and I can be at the Silver National Civil Rights Museum, which was formerly the Lorraine Motel, which is where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. And when things can get back to normal, I challenge everybody to check out that museum. I mean, you could spend easily six hours there, but mm. I mean, it's just one of the best museums in the country, in my opinion. Or if you're in Washington, D.C., this uh, the African-American Museum is amazing. I've been there twice already. But but yeah, I mean, just being just the awareness is huge. And I mean, it's it's crazy just seeing how I mean, these stories have been going on for years. I mean, the Black Lives uh, Matter movement has been going on for years, but people are now starting to um, put their energy because they have nothing else to do. And I mean, it's going into sports um, as well. I mean, it's just everywhere. I mean, it's it's great that people are using their platform for this. Yeah. And so I don't, I hope 
this is an interesting conversation for people to hear, to listen to, to hear your voice, to hear what you have to say. And I appreciate you being willing to, to talk about it because if nobody else, I feel like I got a new perspective and I'm really appreciative of that. So I, thank you, Ben. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Um, we can make a, a shift, I suppose, to a, a slightly less heavy topic to finish this thing out. Um, I actually have a few ways I want to, to, to take this, but I, again, I'll open it up to you. Um, what things do you think that you just wish everybody knew if that makes sense. I feel like we all have this thing that, you know, maybe self-care is one of those things, like finding out, taking care of yourself makes such a big difference. Are there any other things that you feel like you've just like learned that are so formative for the way that you experience life that you just wish that you could share with everybody? Maybe you do share with everybody and you just want to share again. Are there, is there anything like that for you? Yeah. And to be honest with you, this also kind of ties into our, our last topic, um, not necessarily like like racial disparities, but I was very fortunate at a young age to travel the world. Um, you know, the first place I went was Italy well, the summer of my junior year of high school. And I feel when you get a chance to just travel the, these different countries and experience different cultures, that gives you a different perspective because, I mean, you know, a lot of, I mean, I know... Some people, I have friends who have not left the state of Texas, like ever, you know, and like, that's crazy to me. <laughs> Again, it's right in the middle of the of the country. But just to have different perspectives and experiencing different cultures, different food, different music is huge. And I'm so fortunate that I had that opportunity. And I feel like everyone should. I mean, if you can, I know, of course, I know it's expensive, but just if anyone could just once go or even take a cruise somewhere when things get normal so you can experience a different culture, I think like, you know, it's going to help our societies. And, um, yeah, it just, it just helps you out in general, just having yeah. different perspectives. I actually, I went to Malaysia in 2000, a few years ago. I can't remember. And I played the Brandenburg with the Malaysian Phil. Right. Uh -huh. And so me being in Malaysia, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what it feels like to be a minority. Like nobody uh -huh. else looks like me, you know, or maybe right. there are some white people, but there's like, this is what it feels like. I don't feel weird, but I also, people don't look like me. You know, I feel like I don't, there's something I don't know. That's like kind of what I felt like. It was like, I, I'm like, I'm over here and everybody else is living life, doing their thing. And I'm like, right. just sort of there. It was a very sort of out-of-body experience, but it was great. Exactly what you said. I kind of understood at that moment, even to a small degree, of course not to the massive degree, uh -huh. but just to a small degree of what it feels like to be surrounded by people that aren't, that don't look like you. Exactly. So, yes. yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I just think it's, I totally agree. Travel, with, isn't it a Mark Twain quote that's like the enemy of bigotry and something like that is is to travel or something like that, I think. That sounds familiar, yeah. Something yeah. like that. I can't remember the quote, but um, yeah, man, this is really great. Um, is there anything else, like uh, maybe trombone related? I, I, I know we didn't, we sort of veered off topic from like the trombone stuff. Are there any projects that oh, you yeah, have this? coming up that you're excited about that you want to talk? I mean, pandemic willing that you're, uh, that you have on the, that you're excited about? Yeah. Um, I mean, luckily, I'm, I'm still keeping busy even during this pandemic. And even though technically it's, this is summer vacation for me, but um, I mean, people are using a lot of platforms for these like online concerts, like concerts in the home. So like my wife and I are getting ready to do a concert. We, we did one 
last month, well, it's July now, uh, we did one um, in May. Uh, we're getting ready to do another one um, for a series called the 5 p.m. series. Um, I'm, I mean, when we get off the phone or this call, I, I'm recording for some big band projects. So it's, it's cool that we're still recording, like doing studio work. I mean, I do miss just the energy of being in a recording studio, right. but yeah, it's just weird. Like, you know, I'm just recording in this space and then I'm just sending the track off to somebody and then they do their magic. Um, that's fun. Um, even before the pandemic, my wife and I were already planning on doing a new CD project. And so we're using this time just to really get the nuts and bolts together because, of course, it takes a lot into just recording an album, um, just like the the ins and outs, where you're going to record it, or are you going to self-produce? But um, this album is all sacred music, so spirituals and hymns. Um, and we commissioned a lot of our friends that music that we love to do hymns because we would we would play in church all the time and we we played at one church and like I grew up you know playing a lot of the hymns that Doug Yo had arranged for him because he's one of my heroes and while we were in the church you know we just had this epiphany I'm like man this music is beautiful but we're getting kind of bored playing it and we would like to play mu- like some hymns and spirituals with the music that we like to do. So, you know, classically jazz, R&B fusion. So we got some of our friends to arrange hymns for that. And so like, that's our next CD project that's going to be out within this next year. We're extremely excited about. Yeah. That sounds pretty, that sounds like an interesting sort of way to go about doing it. Cause you're right. All the hymns are like this very serious, which is great because the, it's like very moving content but yeah to, to sort of give a fresh perspective uh and update the genre a little bit might be kind of interesting to hear yeah definitely well the very last thing i want to ask you about I, I you obviously i'm sure know about it i have a blog on my website uh-huh. and i write about like i have here's how i practice this thing or like here's this thing or whatever i checked out your great. blog i checked I out your, your blog on your <laughs> website and it's all about what you should wear at various concerts and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> and on one of your interviews, you ha- it was like your welcome interview on your, pay- on your YouTube page. You talked uh-huh. about projects and your heroes. And at the very end, you talked about your fashion sense. And I'm kind of uh-huh. curious. Like, it's something you clearly care very deeply about. I'm kind of curious where that came from and why you take it so seriously. Definitely. Um, that's something I definitely get from my dad. For sure. I mean, he was always up with like the latest fashion. I mean, he was hipping me to a lot of stuff. I mean, I feel like he was on even till this day, like he's on the latest fashion more than I am. And I'm like, man, it's like, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, I should be up on the latest, more than the latest fashion than him. But yeah, I mean, yeah, he he knows his stuff. And I think I posted a, a post of us on Father's Day um, and some throwbacks. And yeah, I mean, you could see like me dressed as like a three-year-old with a bow tie and a blazer on and like, you know, next to him. And so, yeah, I definitely got that from him for sure. And, you know, another thing that I was really enjoyed about Wynton Marsalis, not because, you know, he was a great crossover musician, but his dressing. I mean, that was probably one Mm -hmm. of my favorite big bands that I would want to, a dream big band that I wanted to be a part of was the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. I mean, it's like they're sponsored by Brooks Brothers. I'm like, man, you know, (laughs) you get to, you know, play this killing music and you're wearing a killing suit on top of that (laughs) as well. Yeah, yeah. I I guess the, the reason why I came out with those blogs, I mean, just 
judging, I mean, having students come to audition or judging um, different like Texas Allstate um, solo ensemble and just seeing kids do it wrong and just trying to get them to understand that like the first impression is huge, even if you're you sound like you're killing it. I mean, I had a student um, or a prospective student audition who was like the top of the recruitment class. Like I had a rapport. I mean, I was recruiting him for three years, but my colleagues didn't know who he, who he, who he was and came to audition and like was in jeans. I'm like, oh, gosh. And so he's still killed the audition. But, you know, like my colleagues like, what, what what's this? You know, but yeah. I mean, they enjoyed his playing. So, yeah, I think that's that's just huge how you carry yourself and. I always say if you look good, you feel good, you're going to play good. Yeah. Yeah. I When I go to auditions, I would always – I wouldn't wear a full-on suit, but I would wear a dress shirt, dress pants, stuff like that, you know, because this – yeah, I, I actually completely agree with that. Um, I mean, you're – you look a lot more fresh than I do, you know what I mean? But <laughs> I'm just wearing like a white shirt, you know. There's no bow tie and all that. But – it's interesting. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I don't, if I go there wearing like sweatpants, I'm like, I'm not taking this seriously, you know? And it's even mm-hmm. though it's behind a screen, if I'm wearing mm-hmm. at least some dress pants and a shirt and a dress shirt, I'm thinking, you know what? Like, if they had to see me right now, I'd be all right, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, well, this was awesome, man. I'm so glad we got to do this. I'm glad I got to like meet you and, and talk to you and make this connection. And uh, I really appreciate you being open and sharing of your wisdom and, and just some of your life story, man. It's, it's great. No, man, thanks thanks for having me. Like I said, I've been you know, a fan of your podcast and especially like your blog too. I mean, like your practice tips, which is huge. And um, yeah, so it's been a pleasure chatting with yeah. you. Thank you, man. Um, if people are thinking to themselves, I gotta, I gotta tell them how much I love this episode, uh, how would they get in <laughs> touch with you to be able to do that? Uh, my website is martinmccain.com and like all of my handles are McCain Trombone. Uh, and so cool. face, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, YouTube. Uh, well, you can check them out there uh, for more information. If you need to get in touch with me, most of you know how to do that, but that's not spit.com um, at that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, or you learned something or whatever, it'd be kind of nice if you gave a rating and a review on iTunes. Uh, That would help out a lot. And be sure to share it on social media so other people can find it. I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong. Be kind to yourself. Never stop growing. And we'll see you next time.